Morning, church. Fantastic. It's been a, a wonderful morning we've had today. Um, yeah, it's been it's been great. I always love um, the, the baptism mornings we have. Um, it's been been brilliant today. Uh, Mike is someone that encourages us here, seeing him grow, seeing how far God has brought him, and 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 us celebrating and worshiping this this awesome God that we serve. Um, it's always so encouraging. Um, this is this is the best place to be in the presence of God. I'm worshiping God, and it will be infinitely much more glorious when we are with Him, you know, in eternity forever. Um, what what a, what an amazing time it will be um, when ten thousand years go by and it feels like it's just been a second that has gone by. Um, so a lot of things to look forward to. Um, so I'm going to be taking us through um, our continuing us in our journey through the book of John. Uh, we've been going through the book of John, and uh, John is essentially is drawing his, his audience to the character and the nature and the person of Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to be um, talking uh, from John um, 2, 1 to 12. And I'm going to be um, expanding on, on, on the God who cares for us. So if you've got your Bible, please turn with me to the book of John chapter 2. I'll be reading from verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there, for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. He did not know where it came, it came from, though the servants who had, who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people are drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs, of the, of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is the bread that we live by. It is life for us. We thank you because your word pierces through the deepest thoughts and intents of our hearts. And I just pray, Lord, that as we study and dig deep into your word today, that you will pierce the thoughts and the intents of our hearts and that you will turn our hearts towards you, towards what you want us to do, Lord. Give us ears to hear this morning, Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So, this is a very famous passage of the Bible. If you have been a Christian for many number of years, this is um, the first miracle of Jesus Christ, and it's the water into wine miracle. And it's, uh, this passage of the Bible actually um, took place in a place possibly in today's southern Lebanon. Um, and we know, for example, that 
Um, it, this, this part of the Bible um, uh, lines up quite well with the book of Luke and the book of Luke around chapter, end of chapter three, chapter four. So you are in the same timeline if you're reading the book of Luke. And the reason I draw that is because when Jesus, after he was baptized by John the Baptist and goes into the desert for 40 days and then he's tempted, it says in the book of, of, of Luke, it says, and they returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and the report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. So Jesus goes into the wilderness, comes out, and the first place he goes into is Galilee. And when he goes into Galilee, he just goes into the synagogues and all he is doing is teaching. But his teaching is so powerful, it's so authoritative, it's so masterful that his fame just blew and exploded everywhere and everyone knew about him. So it's very possible that Jesus was invited to this wedding because he was a very famous rabbi. It's also possible that he was potentially relatives of the people getting married there. Well, not likely, but it's possibly because he, his, his family were with him and he was a famous rabbi. So he was invited, like inviting a very prominent speaker um, to your um, ceremony or to a conference that you are having or to a, a party that you are having. It's potentially why Jesus found himself in this wedding. But there are four things that is worth highlighting when we look at this story that I think we need to ask the question, why? When I read the Bible, one thing that helps me is that question, why? Well, why is this passage here? Why did God choose to do this? Why did Christ choose to do this? Why did Paul choose to write this? Why, why, why? This is a very important thing to have, a very simple tool, but very effective in trying to get at the heart of what Scripture is telling us. There are four things worth asking the question why on. Now we see this wedding feast that would have been a week long. So Jewish wedding feast takes about a week long to, to complete. And in the, during the middle of that week, Jesus was present at the wedding. And we see this, this, this wedding um, taking place and then they run out of wine. And then Jesus' mother comes to him and says, we need help here. But what, rather than Jesus do what he normally does, which is, you know, you see him do miracles, Jesus says, it's not my time. Why did he say that? And secondly, the, the wedding hosts are about to be embarrassed because there's no wine present at a party. But then, why is that a big deal? Surely they have apple juice or pineapple juice or orange juice. <laughs> or even if you're trying to lower your calorie intake, they have water. Why, why then is this a big deal of embarrassment to the wedding host? And the third why is, why of all the people in that wedding did Mary go to Jesus? Why didn't she go down to the wine supply down the road? Why Jesus? Then the fourth why is, why of all the miracles Jesus could have done, did he choose to turn water into wine? These four whys I want to linger at the back of your mind. The first why, Jesus said, it is not my time. Now, Jesus Christ, is, it says um, in one of the gospels that he began his ministry at the age of 30. And whenever Jesus Christ was doing things through scriptures, through the gospels, you see times when he says, the hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 17, 1. Um, when Jesus was spoken this thing, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour, the hour has come that the, for the Son to be glorified, that your Son may glorify you. Same thing in Matthew 26, 45. Jesus was very, very, very purposeful about the time and the hour and the, 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 the timing of key events 
in his life. He didn't just act randomly. And when we see in Luke, when he came out of the desert after being tempted, he went and he started preaching. There was no miracles. And when he was preaching in Galilee, it says he went to Nazareth, his hometown. And then he reads from the famous scroll in Isaiah and says to people in his hometown, these scriptures will be fulfilled in your hearing. Still no miracle, just the preaching. And it says that they physically pushed them out of Nazareth. And then we see, if you go on down Luke, 4, in Luke chapter 4, he goes back to Galilee and is still preaching. Then he starts doing his miracles. So it's very likely that at this time, Jesus Christ had not even been back to that scene in Nazareth where he was preaching to his own people. So it wasn't time for him to start doing miracles. It's probably what he's saying here. That my hour has not yet come. And we go to the second why. The wedding hosts were embarrassed. Now, for us, we laughed about the fact that there are other alternatives to wine in a wedding. But for the Jewish psyche, for the Jewish mind, the presence of wine at their feast was of great importance and of great significance. Wine was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of, of the richness of the owners of the wine, but also the richness of the land. Now, if you go back and cast your mind back into the early events of the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt and they came into the wilderness and they eventually went into Cana and they sent 12 spies into the land, they brought back large clusters of grapes. And the people were convinced that, that land must be good. The size of the grapes. Imagine the wine you can make from those things. So for them, it was a sign of health, a sign of wealth, sign of good life, sign of good living. And we see this all through the worship, the requirements for worship in the Old Testament. Whenever God is telling people to bring sacrifices, he's always saying, bring new wine and oil. Bring new wine and oil. And we read in Jeremiah 48, so glad, 48 to 33, so gladness and joy are taken away from the fruitful field, even from the land of Moab. And I have made the wine to cease from the wine presses. No one will tread them with shouting. The shouting will not be shouts of joy. Joel 1.10, the field is ruined, the land mourns, for the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. So we see where there is a lack of wine, it's almost like God's curse. It's almost like there is just, just, just this, this is a, is a spiritual void. So it's, it's much more than just the fact that we don't have this, this, this alcoholic nectar to drink for. There's a spiritual meaning to this. And it would have been a terrible thing for a wedding where there was supposed to be joy and gladness for this wine not to be present. This really was what the embarrassment was. What one could almost say was it almost forebode terrible things for that wedding. They had no wine. And then the third why, Jesus' Jesus's mother, Mary, came to him. Of all the people in that place, she went straight to her son. And I'm reminded as we, we read, as I, as, I, as I read this, I'm reminded of the fact that she must have remembered that she knew who her son was. She remembered when she was just a, a happy-go-lucky girl, just hanging out in her house. And all of a sudden, this being comes out and says to her, you are going to bear a son. And you will do that without having sexual relations with a man. And Mary says, how can this be? And the angel reminds her, Remember your cousin, old Elizabeth. 
past the age of bearing children, she is now far heavy and pregnant with child. Remember that. And Mary remembers and says, let the Lord's will be done. And then Mary casts her mind and realizes when she sees her son, every time she sees her son, she remembers, you are different. You are the one that was promised long ago in Isaiah when it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. She realizes that this is no ordinary boy. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary child. This is the one that is Emmanuel, God with us. And she knows something about the God of Israel, that his name, one of his titles is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord who provides. So she says, we are in lack here. So who do I need to go to? The one that provides. She knew who Jesus was. And then we get to the fourth why. Why wine? Why this miracle? Of all the miracles, we knew that Jesus knows things that were about to happen before they happened. He saw Nathaniel under the tree before he met Nathaniel. He knew that of all the things I'm going to do, this would be my first miracle. Why did he choose it? Now, there are several reasons why Jesus could have chosen wine. We have to almost cast our man back to the desert where he was told by Satan, there's stones here, turn them into bread. Bread. He rejected that. Remember, Satan said to Christ, go to the top of a hybrid and possibly the temple and then jump down in the view of everyone and the angels will catch you. And once they catch you, everyone will say, amazing, he must be the son of God. Jesus rejected that. Those were miracles that he could do to dazzle people, to prove to people that I am the one. But he rejected that. And so he comes to an obscure wedding. And we know it's an obscure wedding because it doesn't mention the name of a, a Roman emperor or the Roman governor or Herod or Herod or a ruler. It's, an obscure, it's, a, it's a nobody's wedding. We don't even know the names of the people who are getting married. It was in this backwater town at the edges of the Roman Empire. He chooses a nobody's wedding to carry out his first sign. Why? There are potentially several reasons. Perhaps he was being a good boy, a good son. Your mommy instructs you to do something and you do it. Perhaps he was honoring the invitation of his hosts and didn't want them to look embarrassed. Perhaps he was trying to demonstrate to his disciples that he's the Messiah. Going back to Joel 3, a messianic uh, 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 chapter in, in Joel 3 that talks about the end times and God bringing judgment and then restoring the world. And, and, and in Joel it says, And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wines, wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the strange beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water from the valley of Shittim. Maybe he's drawing the attention back to those messianic verses that he's the one that brings sweet wine. Perhaps he's showing that he's the one that brings permanent purification. You see the, the jars, the, 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 the vessels that the water was poured in were called purification vessels or vessels carrying the waters of purification because the Jews were concerned about their purification. The Jews were aware of something. They were aware of the God that they, they, they worship. They are aware that God is holy. We just sang this morning, he's holy, he's far apart. It says in the Bible that he sits in the 
highest part of the north in heaven. He's so exalted. So how, how can they approach God? He's giving them certain principles and things where they have to wash their hands, they have to wash their legs. You know yourself. After a day of work, you come back in and your armpits start smelling. You play a game of football and your feet can't bear to bring it towards your nose. <laughs> there is something about our body that reflects our need for constant washing. But even deeper, there's something in our heart, and we know this, that even needs washing. We've seen our, our friend Mike, our brother, go through the waters of baptism today. And there was nothing special in that water that Matt has put into that water. It's just ordinary water. But there is a deeper washing that goes on. The washing of the heart. And that washing happens with the blood of Jesus Christ. We see wine feature in many key locations in Jesus Christ's life. We see wine as the first miracle. Turn water to wine, the first miracle. Then we see Jesus elevate wine at the last supper with his disciples. Jesus elevates wine and said, this wine is symbolic of my blood, which I'm about to be shared for the forgiveness of the sins of many. That is what is, is the powerful thing. We see wine offered to Jesus on the cross where he tastes sour wine. He tastes it and rejects it. But the wine, the, the, the wine in, in, in the Jesus theology, as it were, is exalted as that thing that brings permanent purification cleans you. You don't need to keep going back to the waters of purification and filling it up again, filling it up. Once Christ cleans you, you're clean. It, it could be that this is what Jesus is drawing the attention of those who are present to. But then I ask an even more fundamental question, why? Three things. Firstly, he cares for you. That's why. I asked myself the question, what is the one, we sang it this morning, the one who created the heavens and the earth, the one whom the holy angels worship, they dare not put their feet where his feet has been. He's so far apart, so separated, so far removed, so precious, so sacred. What is he doing here on this piece of dirt? What is he doing with people who have no titles, no land, no special prominence? They can't even have enough wine for their wedding. Come on. At least pick people that can afford wine for their wedding. He goes to the most insignificant people. Why? Because he cares. I'm reminded in Psalm 9, 3 to 6, when the psalmist writes, when I look at the heavens, the works of your fingers, the moons and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. The creation of God's hands are vast, immense, intense, mind-blowing, incomprehensible, even to the most advanced scientific mind. He, he is well within his right to ride on his chariots of fire from galaxy to galaxy, admiring his creation. But what does he do? He decides to come down into the wedding of insignificant people. 
into their mess. Why? Because that's what he actually cares about. I recently came across the video of a young man um, from Lagos, Nigeria. The young man um, was a, 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 as a teacher, a math teacher, teaches at a private school, and he teaches chess also. But this man has this desire to go to the most uh, uh, forsaken children in Lagos. They live in, an, in areas, slums, some slums such as a place called Makoko, where people live on, on the, they live on water, basically, on these wooden stilts, houses built on wooden stilts. And those children don't have, um, they, they've got no prospect in life. Only, the only thing they can as, aspire to is building boats and, and being fishermen. That's all they can aspire to. Education is virtually nil. And this guy, who's not getting paid from these children because they can't afford it, he's not getting paid from their parents because he's not for it, can, can't afford it, he cares enough to get into a canoe, go over there and teach his children. And he sets up chess clubs and he has chess championships. And these children are getting introduced to part of, of society and life that they would never have any prospects of getting into. And I kept watching this video and I was just, I just couldn't take my eyes off it. And I just thought, this is so wonderful, this is so noble, this is so good. But why does he do it? Because he cares. That guy actually cares. Many people have walked past those children and didn't give them two thoughts. But this guy actually cares. And it is like that with Jesus. Maybe you are also here with a no name. You don't have a big land to your name. You don't have big titles to your name. Maybe there's not much wine in your own cellar too. Jesus cares about you. It is you especially he cares about. And so when we know and understand that Jesus cares this deeply, then what Mary says then starts to make some sense. Do whatever he asks you. You see, it's difficult to do whatever someone asks me. If I don't know their intentions, are they going to use me? Are they going to scam me? Are they going to manipulate me? Are they using me for their own advantage? But it's easier when I know that he actually cares for me. When I know that he doesn't need me. He, he has everything. He owns everything. But he left it all. So it becomes a bit easier to trust someone like that, doesn't it? And then we have to ask, do whatever he asks of you. So what is it that he's asking of us? Micah 6, 6 to 8. I love when I have a question and the Bible answers that question directly. By saying, and what does he ask of us? That's what it says, if it can be displayed in Micah 6, 6 to 8. And what does he ask of us? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What is, what is this person saying? What is, what is the prophet saying? It, it, it's saying, how do I come to God? What, is, you know, God? what does God ask for me? And it, then it goes and says, how do I approach God? The one that sits in the highest part of heaven. How do I approach him? Do I approach him with my wealth? That's what it's saying here. Rams and goats and, and, and sheep. Those were significant for the people in that time of their wealth. Do I come before him with 10,000 rivers of oil? Do I come? Because what oil signifies is land, right? Because you need olive trees to get olive oil 
And for you to have 10,000 of olive oil, you must have a lot of land. Do I give him my land wealth? Do I give him my cattle wealth? Do I give him all the money in my bank account? And then he goes on to say, shall I offer up my firstborn? What a firstborn signifies here is basically your pension. Right? Back in the days, your firstborn was your pension because you had children. And they were the ones that looked after you when you grew old and, you, and you're ready to depart from the world. They were the ones that looked after you. So I said, do I give you my present wealth or do I even give you my future wealth? If I give everything to you, is that enough? Is that what God wants from me? And then the response comes. He has told you, oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require from you? This is the answer to Mary's question or to Mary's command. But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what he requires from us. Do whatever he asks of you. What is he asking of you? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly before God. James explains this a little bit in James 1.27, which when he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Serve those who have nothing to give you back in return and keep yourself from the pollution of this world. It is worth noting that James gives this instruction to the church at a time when they were going through poverty and famine in the land, when they were going through persecution. James offers this advice to people who are struggling themselves and says, you should care about those who have nothing to give to you back in return. We are currently going through our own economic famine, as it were. High inflation rates, people struggling to make and meet sure many people that, that you come across in, in your day-to-day, even in this church here, will be struggling. And we have been told, don't, 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 don't let it be about yourself. How can I serve? And sometimes we might get to this question and say to, us, to ourselves, yeah, God, you, you know how difficult it is for me. You know how I'm struggling to make ends meet. How can you say to me to go and serve others or to give to others? I've got nothing left to give. All I have is water. How can you tell me to give wine to people? I, I, don't, I have water. But what does Jesus say? That's enough. Jesus said that's enough. All, 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 I have, all I have is I don't have money. All I have is time. Well, that's enough. You can give of your time, can't you? God is not expecting you to bring millions and, and bring expensive things and give to people. That's not what he's asking for. He's saying, out of the little that you have, share. It could be offering to do some shopping for someone that you know is going through a struggle at the moment or offering to invite people to dinner and host people. And say, let, let, us, let us fellowship together. Let us eat together. Let us share of our things, of our wealth, of our lives, of our time. Even though I don't have that much, but let us share it. It's not much. How am I going to make it to the end of the month? God reminds us. Christ reminds us in Matthew 6, 25, 33. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? 
and the body with modern clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into bands. And yet your father, your heavenly father, feeds them. Are you not much more valued than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, or you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Jesus teaches us a very important lesson here. It says, observe nature. Observe the birds, the flowers. Observe the earthworms. Insignificant. Yes, something that is very mind-blowing. God actually thinks about every individual one. God who doesn't sleep, doesn't slumber, so he's always awake. But he's actually thinking about the earthworm that I walked over this morning on my way to church. And he's thinking, where's that bloke going to get his food from? Then the bird flies over my head and he's thinking, all right, where's she going to get her food from? And then the grass I walked past was thinking, yes, I want it to be this shade of green or the shade of whatever shade grasses have. God actually thinks about every single thing. It is, we, we, we are here thinking, why? We have people today who are the biggest environmentalists, you know, we want to save the earth. God is, God, God looks at them and goes, hey, you guys are my tears. I spend my time thinking about all these things. And you know what the craziest part of it? Not one of them are made in his image. So if he spends that much effort thinking about something that is here today and dead tomorrow, not made in his image, don't you think he's spending a bit more time thinking about you and your concerns? This is what Christ is drawing our attention to. We think that nobody can be concerned more concerned about my life, about my embarrassment, about my fear, about my insecurities. No one can be more concerned about those things than me. God says, really? I think about those things. I am concerned for those things. That's why he says, God knows you need them all. But what is he saying? Seek first my kingdom. You cannot change your situation by worrying about them, about the future. You cannot add an extra hour to your life by, by just worrying extra. In fact, if the medical professionals are right, you diminish years of your life by additional worrying. But what does God say? Seek first the kingdom. And what is this kingdom? He talks about it in Micah 6. Seek justice. What is right? In this day and age, people are going to be looking to get ahead. Financially, I'm struggling. So maybe if I can make myself look better at work and I can get that promotion, maybe if I can make myself look better than the other person, say something slightly off color about that person, take glory 
for something else someone did, that will not be seeking justice. Christ says, don't, don't, don't be so concerned about your personal needs that it means that you, you, you run away from justice. You don't seek justice. You don't do what is right, what is fair. Seek justice. Do what is right. Maybe someone owes you money and things are tight. Maybe God is saying, have mercy and forgive that person. 100 pounds? Tell that person, don't worry about it. Maybe that's what God is saying. In this time, how can you tell me? How can you say to, to, to let's let go of 100 pounds? You know what that's going to do for me? Maybe God is saying, have mercy. Have more that I'm going to give to you. Maybe God is saying, don't be so concerned about all the, 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 the trials and the challenges that you face. The people around you, they need something greater. Are you, are you looking to give them what will last them all eternity? Are you, are you ready to share the gospel? Or are you so fixated on your own immediate needs? The people around you also need the gospel. Be ready to share the gospel with them. This is what it means to be those who are seeking first the kingdom of God. Be people of love. Of that love kindness, that love peace, not strife. I want, give me, give me, give me. No, 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 no. Seek peace. Be ready to serve those who have nothing to give back to you. This is what, is what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. And Christ says today, in this time we're currently going through, this economic famine we're going through, he's saying, Make this your overriding priorities. Make this the thing that concerns you the most because he cares for you and he is deeply concerned about those things that you need. And guess what? He's working on them. So he's given us something to do in seeking first his kingdom. Let us pray. Father, we thank you because you are faithful. We thank you because even when our faith is small and our faith is weak and sometimes non-existent, you still humor us. You still condescend to our level, come down and provide for what we need. You are a good father. Help us to see that you are indeed the one who cares for us and to truly trust in you. Help us to seek first your kingdom each and every day to be the people who are known as God's people, not living for ourselves, but living for God and living to serve those around us. Help us in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.